Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Welcome to the May 2nd, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to let you know about the new material you'll find if you go to annals.org. The first new article to mention is a study that found that a growing number of U.S. states have implemented policies that provide statewide coverage for undocumented persons with kidney failure to receive outpatient hemodialysis. Currently, undocumented immigrants in the U.S. cannot receive federal health insurance nor insurance through most state Medicaid programs. In many states, undocumented immigrants with kidney failure receive hemodialysis only after presenting critically ill to an emergency department because treatment then is mandated by the 1986 Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, which requires hospitals to provide emergency care regardless of ability to pay. Emergency hemodialysis is associated with a 14-fold higher mortality rate at five years an increased psychosocial burden for patients, caregivers, and clinicians. In 2019, only 12 states in the District of Columbia provided statewide coverage of outpatient hemodialysis by including kidney failure as a qualifying condition under emergency Medicaid. Researchers from the University of Colorado and University of California, San Francisco, assessed policy between March and October 2022 by review of state Medicaid and emergency Medicaid policy manuals and interviews with clinicians with experience working with undocumented immigrants in every state. The authors found that as of 2022, 20 states in Washington, D.C. provide statewide coverage for standard outpatient hemodialysis for undocumented immigrants. 17 of those states provide outpatient hemodialysis through emergency Medicaid, the remainder through Medicaid or state insurance pools. Five states also provide coverage for kidney transplantation. According to the authors, the expansion of dialysis coverage may be due to increasing awareness of poor outcomes with emergency hemodialysis and heightened advocacy efforts. An accompanying editorial highlights the significant burden of lack of access to kidney replacement therapy care faced by undocumented residents experiencing kidney failure and calls on legislators and policymakers to support a pathway for non-U.S. citizens living in the U.S., including undocumented immigrants, to be able to purchase affordable insurance. As many as 16% of older adults worldwide live alone, and the proportion is expected to grow over time, the resulting isolation is of significant policy concern as loneliness is associated with depression, cognitive decline, and reduced well-being. Given the low number of trained therapists in developing countries and the financial constraints their governments face, Delivery of cognitive behavioral therapy over the phone could be a promising intervention to improve the well-being of older persons living alone. Similarly, cash transfers could have a direct impact on food security and could also affect mental health. In the next article, researchers report a study of 1,120 adults living alone in Tanil Nadu, India, aged 55 and older, to determine whether phone-based cognitive behavioral therapy, or a cash transfer reduce functional impairment, depression, or food insecurity in this population. Participants received phone-based cognitive behavioral therapy, a one-time cash transfer of 1,000 rupees, or both. The outcomes were measured at baseline and at two rounds of follow-up phone surveys, three weeks and three months after the end of cognitive behavioral therapy. Overall, the small cash transfer reduced short-term functional impairment 
cash had no effect on short-term food insecurity. Unfortunately, none of the interventions showed any effect by three months. We thought it was important to publish this essentially negative study so that other locales that may be considering implementation of similar interventions know not to anticipate substantial benefit. Next is a randomized trial of more than 7,000 people that found that hypotension avoidance strategies were not associated with a decrease in postoperative hypotension or adverse outcomes compared with hypertension avoidance strategies. Hypotension is common during and after non-cardiac surgery. It is also associated with an increased risk for death and cardiovascular complications at 30 days after non-cardiac surgery. Similarly, postoperative hypertension is associated with vascular complications after non-cardiac surgery. Half of adults having major non-cardiac surgery have a history of hypertension, and most use antihypertensive agents. Uncertainty remains about what intraoperative blood pressure to target and how to manage long-term antihypertensive medications perioperatively. Researchers conducted a randomized trial using two perioperative blood pressure management strategies with 7,490 participants. Patients randomized to the hypotension avoidance strategy did not take angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers from the night before surgery through postoperative day two, resuming them three days after surgery. Patients randomized to the hypertension avoidance strategy received all their usual antihypertensive preoperatively, including on the morning of surgery and immediately postoperatively. The authors found that fewer patients using the hypotensive avoidance strategy experienced clinically significant hypotension compared with patients using the hypertensive avoidance strategy. No surprise. However, there was no difference between the strategies related to vascular death and non-fatal myocardial injury, stroke, or cardiac arrest. According to the authors, further research is needed to identify and evaluate perioperative interventions that can modify hemodynamics to an extent and in the direction that will lead to a favorable effect on major clinical outcomes. An accompanying editorial calls for future studies to examine both intraoperative and postoperative management strategies, identify other patient risk factors for poor outcomes, and ensure the clarity of surrogate versus patient-relevant clinical outcomes. Last year's MPOX outbreak disproportionately affected people living with HIV and drove the first widespread use of the novel antiviral tecovirumab. The next study compared the clinical presentation and treatment outcomes of persons with and without HIV infection who had MPOX treated with tecovirumab. The study retrospectively collected data on 196 individuals treated with tecovirumab for confirmed MPOX infections from June to August 2022 at two academic medical centers in New York City. Of 154 testing positive for MPOX, 73 had HIV and 4 had CD4 counts less than 200. The researchers found that clinical presentations and indications for tecovirumab treatment were similar between persons with and without HIV. Four individuals experienced serious adverse events, but none were attributed to tecovirumab. Three of these four participants had HIV and two had CD4 counts less than 200. 23% of all participants experienced non-severe side effects of tecovirumab. Groups had similar rates of hospitalization, indications for treatment, and co-occurring infections, but persons living with HIV had fewer days from symptom onset to treatment, 7.5 versus 10. 
there were no difference in treatment outcomes, including days to improvement or rate of persistent symptoms. Patients with MPOX who were not treated with tecavirumet were not followed routinely and therefore lacked comparable outcome data, limiting evaluation of efficacy of therapy. However, these data suggest that HIV status did not significantly alter most elements of disease presentation or treatment outcomes among patients who were treated with tecavirumet for severe MPOX. The American Heart Association and American Stroke Association have endorsed 15 process measures for acute ischemic stroke to improve the quality of care. Identifying the highest value measures could reduce the overall administrative burden of quality measure adoption while retaining much of the value of quality improvement. So in the study reported in the next article, researchers sought to prioritize endorsed acute ischemic stroke quality measures based on health impact and cost effectiveness using a simulation model. The model showed that all quality measures were estimated to be cost-saving or highly cost-effective at less than $50,000 per quality. Early carotid imaging and TPA contribute the largest fraction of the total potential value of quality improvement, accounting for 73% of the total value. The top five quality measures accounted for 92% of the total potential value. The researchers conclude that their findings can help clinicians and payers set priorities for quality improvement efforts and value-based payments in acute stroke care. The COVID-19 vaccines were developed in rigorously evaluated and randomized controlled trials within a year of the first reports of COVID-19. However, important current questions about the speed with which effectiveness is waning and the effectiveness of booster vaccination were not and could not be answered by these trials and must be addressed by observational studies. Yet there were serious methodologic limitations of many of the published observational studies. The authors of the next article discuss how potential sources of bias in these studies could have been addressed by the hypothetical randomized trial, the target trial, whose results can be estimated using data assembled during vaccine rollouts. A design that matches available observational data can be conceptualized as a sequence of trials on each day, eligible individuals who have not yet been vaccinated or randomly assigned to immediate vaccination or remaining unvaccinated. This conceptualization has been used by some observational studies to the effect of COVID-19 vaccination, while others set a single baseline at the start of the rollout, then consider vaccination as a time-varying variable. Challenges in estimating COVID-19 vaccine effectiveness in observational studies include the rapid uptake of vaccination, rapid changes in the incidence of COVID-19 outcomes, and confounding. The nature of confounding depends on the analysis strategy. To estimate per-protocol effects may require that the analysis adjusts for both baseline and time-varying confounders. The authors illustrate these issues in analyses estimating the effect of a first vaccine in over 2 million people in England aged over 70 years. Estimates of vaccine effectiveness were markedly attenuated after adjusting for time-varying confounding, particularly for all-cause mortality. Substantial estimated vaccine effectiveness soon after vaccination was likely to reflect unmeasured confounding. Addressing the issues discussed in this paper should help researchers conduct observational studies that provide robust evidence to guide policymakers and clinicians. The next article I want to mention is a pilot of a new feature that Annals is considering implementing. The goal of the feature is to have subspecialists look back the previous year and briefly summarize about 10 clinically influential publications that they believe clinicians outside of their specialty might have missed and should be aware of. The pilot is in infectious diseases. 
In 2022, the COVID-19 pandemic remained the infectious disease at the top of most internal medicine physicians' minds. However, COVID-19 was not the only infectious disease that was a topic of clinically relevant research during that year. The authors highlight selected infectious disease evidence unrelated to COVID-19 that was published in 2022. They screened the literature for sound new evidence relevant to internal medicine specialists and subspecialists whose focus of practice was not infectious diseases. Take a look at the new feature and let us know if you think Annals should develop this as an annual feature that includes similar highlights in all internal medicine subspecialties. Also new are the latest ACP Journal Club summaries and the latest episode of the Annals on-call podcast. The topic of the new podcast is opioids and chronic pain. Finally, if you go to annals.org, you will find videos of stories about firearm injury that clinician and lay storyteller shared at a StorySlam event held in Philadelphia and co-hosted by Annals of Internal Medicine, the American College of Physicians, and The Pulse, a national public radio health and science program. The stories are both heart-wrenching and inspiring. I encourage you to take some time to watch them. I think taken together, the stories are likely to change the mind of anyone who thinks firearm injury is not a public health issue. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for spending time listening to learn what's new in Annals. I hope you'll go to annals.org to take a closer look and return in two weeks for the next podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.